You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. The other character that gets brought into uh, a Brit Milah um, is uh, Elijah. Um, so we may, I think we talked a little bit about Elijah, but just to refresh our memory, um, Elijah was a uh, prophet of uh, biblical Israel who prophesied uh, during the reign of uh, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, um, and uh, who saw himself as being the one last uh, person in Israel who was loyal to the God of Israel um, and was not particularly popular because of it. Uh, so it was, uh, uh, you know, chased uh, uh, nearly to his death uh, by uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, and uh, uh, we're, we're told, according to the book of Kings, was uh, taken up by God uh, in a fiery chariot before his death. Uh, and in uh, Jewish lore, uh, even though none of this is actually biblical, in Jewish lore, um, uh, Elijah, uh, well, there is one passage in, uh, in the latter prophets uh, that, uh, uh, that talks about um, sending Elijah the prophet before the uh, great and terrible day of God. Right? Um, and so from that, the rabbis sort of understand that what happened to Elijah is he was sort of like collected up by God before death to be held in waiting uh, to be the one, the person who announces the coming of the Messiah. Is this uh, the same uh, Elijah that we opened the door to? Yes. Yeah. No, the very same. So what? So what? Uh, so what Elijah becomes in the tradition is the figure that's most closely associated with the coming of the Messiah, right? The ultimate redemption. Um, and so that's exactly where the custom comes from on Passover. We're on Passover celebrating uh, historical redemption, and our hope is toward the end of the Seder we open the door and uh, and future redemption will come in, right? And the same thing is true um, at uh, at the birth of a of a baby, right? What we're expressing and what we're in some ways in uh, hoping to impress upon the child and his parents who are going to raise him is that uh, we, we think that this child might be the missing piece, right, of what we need to help repair the world and lead us toward redemption, right? So we invite Elijah into the room um, uh, in the in in the um, in the expression uh, of our hope for this life, right? So talk about, you know, what, what's the, what's the uh, goal of Judaism, right? To perfect the body, perfect the spirit, right? Perfection of both body and spirit is, the, is really the culmination of the Jewish project, the, the leading of the, to the Messianic era. And right at the very beginning, we express that, uh, that, that our hope for the child is that they will um, uh, uh, lead that kind of life and, and uh, inspire others to uh, participate in that kind of world repair as well. So we have a chair set aside at the bris for, uh, for Elijah the prophet. Um, so, uh, um, uh, so, and then obviously there's a circumcision, and obviously because it's Judaism, we have a celebratory meal afterwards. Right? <laughs> um, so, uh, um, it, oh, and, and uh, also because it's uh, uh, Judaism, um, we perform the ritual um, uh, with blessings over a cup of wine, um, some of which the baby gets to have. Uh, uh, any questions about that? Uh, about uh, 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 Brit Milah? I have a question. If the, 
mother is not Jewish, but they have a bris. What is that? What is that child? So say that again. Uh, the, mother the mother's not, not Jewish, Jewish, but they have a bris. Right. Is, what is faith? Uh, a human? No. Um, <laughs> uh, it sounds like a it sounds like a joke that I know. Um, um, what's black and white and red all over? Uh, no, I, I hear, I understand. So uh, um, the baby is um, is from uh, from my understanding of Jewish law. Um, uh, although there are rabbis in different movements that that uh, would disagree with me about this, because there are certain movements that. Uh, um, except one Jewish parent as uh, enabling a Jewish child, and it doesn't matter which parent. But from my perspective, um, a child, in order to be born Jewish, has to be born of a Jewish mother. Um, and so what, what I, how I would understand that bris is uh, what, what I would call brit milah l'shem gior, which means uh, right brit, uh, a bris in the name of, uh, of converting, so that uh, um, when the child... Um, is uh, old enough to, whether that's, you know, three months old or 13 years old or whatever it is, all the child would need to do in order to formally convert to Judaism is immerse in a mikvah. Um, whereas, if a child um, uh, was not circumcised, uh, a non-Jewish child, uh, uh, and I mean that even when there might be a Jewish father, a non-Jewish child um, uh, isn't circumcised in order to convert to Judaism, they would need to be circumcised. Um, and uh, and if they are circumcised um, uh, in in not a bris, let's say they had a medical circumcision, um, they would need in order to convert to Judaism what's called a hatafat dam brit, which uh, means like a, a ritual reenactment of the circumcision, which involves uh, 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 a, a pinprick at the site of uh, of the circumcision um, and uh, uh, reciting the prayers that uh, you would recite at uh, at, at circumcision, um, which is obviously uh, a uh, less than uh, uh, exciting aspect of uh, circumcision for uh, for adult men um, and for and, and especially for uh, little boys. Um, so uh, I would I would call I don't know what I would call that child other than the fact that he's not Jewish or or uh, he might be, you know, on the road to be to becoming fully Jewish, um, but I would call the parents very smart uh, for for doing that, um, uh, you know, uh, because they save the child a lot of uh, pain and suffering later in life. In the event that the child, you know, wants to formally convert to Judaism, or the parents want to formally convert the child to Judaism. Other other questions. So Debbie mentioned something uh, that's uh, worth our talking about called a simchat bat, um, which means uh, uh, re- rejoicing over a daughter. Um, the Torah itself, uh, as, uh, as we mentioned, um, uh, prescribes no specific ritual for the birth of a, of, of a girl. Um, uh, it uh, uh, um, had been for many centuries, um, and I never really dug back to the, to the, to how old this tradition is, uh, but the custom, much like a person would give, uh, their, uh, child, uh, a, their, uh, their, their son, uh, his, uh, his, I mean, it used to be their name, uh, but in our context where people often have different English and Hebrew names 
to give the child their Hebrew name after Brit Milah. Um, uh, it was often the case, as was the case for me and, and my child, uh, when the child only had a Hebrew name, um, that you would not give the child any name at all until the Brit Milah. Um, and, you know, that primarily has to do with superstition because uh, demons, uh, um, if they knew the name of the child, uh, would be able to uh, snatch the child uh, before the child uh, was uh, had had the Brit Milah, which would give them the spiritual protection they needed to ward off the demons. Um, does that make sense? No. <laughs> so, um, uh, but in any event, uh, so it's been a custom for for, for you know, many centuries to uh, to also uh, uh, formally uh, name. Uh, uh, baby girls uh, soon after their birth uh, in the community, and uh, many people have the tradition of also not giving them their uh, uh, Hebrew name, and in some contexts that was not giving them their name at all, um, until they do it formally um, in, uh, in, in a communal setting, um, which is what, you know, what we would call today a baby naming, right, or uh, in Hebrew, kriyat shem. Um, and so some people who have uh, uh, baby girls, um, uh, that's the ritual they do to, uh, to sort of announce the, and, and, and welcome the child. You know, so boys have a brit milah and girls have a baby naming, and that usually entails the parents bringing the child uh, 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 to a service in which we read Torah, um, and there's a special blessing that said, you know, for the parents and over the and for the child, uh, the child's name is announced and everybody celebrates. Um, uh, in uh, uh, fairly recent memory, uh, the um, uh, really, uh, um, I don't think that there are origins much deeper. Um, than the rise of the feminist movement in the in, in the sixties to have uh, um, um, welcoming rituals for girls that were as um, significant as the welcoming ritual for uh, for for a boy um, and so um, uh, lots of practices uh, were developed uh, called uh, called different things the most common one is simchat ba which means rejoicing over a girl uh, my in laws. Uh, created a ritual when my wife was born called Zeved Habat, which is um, uh, more common in Sephardi traditions, which means the gift of a daughter. Um, and there's a few different names for these things, but and there's also many different rituals uh, that are that that are done. There's a sort of wide range of what's done for a uh, uh, for a Simchat Bat um, because. Uh, the, the Brit Milah, um, the central ritual, which is the circumcision, hasn't changed much in several thousand years. But a lot of the other rituals are surrounding the Brit Milah um, were sort of, uh, con- they congealed over time. Um, uh, so we're in a period uh, of, uh, of, of Jewish development where a Simchat Bat is a relatively new phenomenon. There's a lot of different traditions out there. My guess is in a thousand years, there'll be one standard tradition that everyone will think came from Moses at Mount Sinai, right? But right now, there's a lot of different traditions. Um, so there's, you know, uh, um, uh, and uh, if, you, if you want, what you can do is you can uh, uh, go on YouTube and, uh, and, and YouTube um, uh, Naf Simchat Bat, uh, and uh, you can find the the seven part video for uh, my Simchabat for Lila when she was a, a couple weeks old. Um, so you get a sense of what what ours was. So we used uh, water as like a recurring theme and ritual uh, throughout. So instead of a circumcision, we washed the baby's hands and uh, um, and feet and 
all that sort of stuff. Um, okay, so that's, but um, I don't have a lot more to say about uh, the, the rituals of Chabad other than the fact that, uh, that the symbolic significance of it is, uh, is not all that different than what we're saying about a Brit Milah, right? It's uh, bringing a child um, into the context of community, family relationship, uh, a, a connection to transcendent perfection of body, perfection of spirit. Um, questions? My granddaughter, uh, uh, when uh, a couple of months before she was uh, going to give birth, kept the kept the secret for, uh, about the sex of the child, and she told only one person, her best friend. And before the uh, she was due, about a month before they due, they had a reveal party. <laughs> and what the the, uh, the friend did is she went to get a cake. And the, she knew that it was a girl, so they put pink icing in, in, inside the white inside. Uh-huh. It was blue. It was blue. And then um, we had a party. Cute. And uh, she finally sliced the cake and it was a girl. Cute. And that was before the baby was born. Right? Before, That's the, before baby. the baby was born. Cute. That's, That's the cool. the real There's nothing, nothing Jewish about that. That's just part. Except it was... Within Jews, so it's Jewish. Well, if there's if there's two Jews, we eat, right? Who would think of it? Um, So I want to I I want to say something briefly about um, uh, Hebrew names. Um, I mentioned it a a moment ago. Um, So you know, there was a period of uh, of time. I'd say you know, probably most of Jewish history. Um, where uh, a person's Hebrew name was their name. Um, although there were certainly uh, times in Jewish history when, especially, you know, uh, um, in diaspora communities where it was very common for people to have names that, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, meshed with the surrounding culture and then uh, a Hebrew name um, that was used to identify them in Jewish, con- in specifically Jewish contexts, right? So, at their wedding, being called up to the Torah, things like that, right? And so that's basically the, the practice, I'd say, most of the, uh, um, uh, uh, most of the diaspora today is for people to have uh, two names. One is their, you know, their, their English name or whatever language they speak, right? That uh, um, is sort of how they're colloquially known. And uh, the other is the name that's specifically used for Jewish contexts. Um, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but since I get to teach the class, I want to make a, a, a pitch for another direction. Um, so um, uh, uh, the Midrash says uh, that... Um, uh, one of the few things uh, that kept uh, Jews connected to Judaism and their roots when they were slaves in Egypt um, is that they never uh, stopped the practice of uh, of giving themselves uh, uh, Hebrew names right? that they that they continued to call themselves uh, by their by their Jewish names um, and I think that there's something uh, profound and significant and and inescapable. Um, in one's identity, um, when one's primary source of identification um, is their Jewish selves, right? So I can much more easily blend into the broader society and de-emphasize my Jewishness um, with the name Michael, 
Uh, in fact, I think I have a pretty Catholic name, Michael Joseph. Um, <laughs> um, I don't say my, my parents say that too. Uh, but uh, right, but uh, but but if I was named Yerucham, which is my Hebrew name, um, it would be pretty unavoidable that uh, that you know I, I I would have a much harder time assimilating. Right, um, my you know, God bless him. He's gonna have a hard time. But my son, um, uh, there's gonna be no mistaking. I mean, he might actually be you know, uh, uh, there 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 maybe some communities actually that that uh, that that um, when I was um, when we were talking to the nurses in our um, uh, uh, we hadn't announced the name yet, but we hadn't decided exactly how in English we wanted to spell Shemaya. So um, so I gave a few different spellings to some of the nurses and said, like, you know, um, uh, which of these names, which of these spellings sound, looks like the right way to you? And they said, you had a boy, right? And, and I said, yeah. And they said, you know, I don't, we don't see, we see sometimes this name, but we don't see a lot of boys with this name. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And they said, and yeah, mainly the girls who get the name are African-American. <laughs> and uh, it's really okay. You know, so there are other communities in which uh, Shemaya will feel right at home. Uh, but uh, um, uh, but uh, but anyway, it, it's uh, it, that was a deliberate choice that Adira and I had. Right, that um, um, we wanted uh, his uh, primary way of relating in the world to be his Jewish self. Um, and uh, you know, I think that there's something I, I encounter lots of Jews um, who. You know, either never received a Hebrew name at all, or don't really know it, or if they know it, you know, don't even know how to spell it, right? And I, I you know, I, 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 I love and embrace every Jew and without judgment, but I think that there's something, you know, the, the, there's really a, a, a tragedy about that, um, you know, at, at, that at the very least, um, it's not something, you know, uh, uh, that they carry with them, yeah. Rabbi, and excuse my ignorance. Course, when we're, you mentioned the Hebrew name is used quite often during the marriage ritual when we're called to the Torah, etc. When a male is called to the Torah, it, it's the Hebrew name Ben, the father's name. But I've heard occasionally, and, and when a woman is called, now I think when my wife is called to the Torah, her it's Bat, and again her father's name. But I've heard occasionally, and if I, correct me if I'm wrong, that sometimes the mother's name is used of the person. In other words, would be. Uh, Whatever, however you say Hebrew, the daughter of say Esther. Right. It's, not, it's not only for it's only for women. It's for men too. It's another one of the gifts that that the feminist movement uh, has given us is the acknowledgement that uh, women also had a role in the upbringing of uh, of, uh, of Are of, you uh, seeing that being. more frequently in say in our that women have a role in the raising of child? Of no, children? no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I am. I am. Rose isn't here tonight, so. <laughs> Um, I am, thankfully I am, and I, and I try to advocate for it. Um, uh, I think it's important. Um, I think that, you know, it, historically, a person was, you know, uh, I was, you, you know, Yerucham ben Yitzchak, right? Uh, and women, for, for their part, were, were Devorah bat Abraham, or whatever your, you know, were, whatever your father's name is. What's your father's name? Yosef. Yosef, okay. Devorah bat Yosef 
Right. I know, but I'm just saying, yeah. historically, right, uh, before the 60s, you would have definitely been Devorah Bat Yosef, or probably Bas Yosef. Well, uh, isn't it more recent than the 60s? Right. I, haven't, I don't remember going back that far. Uh, I, I, well, it certainly probably isn't earlier than the 60s. Okay. Right? That's what I would say. Uh, but, uh, but it's a... It's, so, so how it's a, do you it's do it when, you're, when the woman is called to the Torah? Do they use... Is it appropriate? It's, it's not only the woman. It's, things, or, what, or? it's When I get called to the Torah, I get called uh, Yerucham ben... Well, I'll just shorten it. Yerucham ben Yitzhak Dina. That's how I like to be called to the Torah. And so I'm identified in my ketubah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, how I'll be identified on my headstone in my grave, uh, right? Um, because my mom had a hand in raising me too. Um, uh, but, uh, so it's, it, it, I don't know, I can't pinpoint exactly when it started, but I'm, I'm fairly certain, um, uh, it was not common before the 60s or 70s. Now, in the Orthodox movement, are you seeing that happening? Uh, I don't really follow the developments as much, uh, so I can't really say with, uh, with integrity, but probably less so. I would think so. Yeah. Carrie. And there's, is there not a tradition of identifying an individual as the product of the mother alone when you are asking for healing? There is. There is. And that, that's another point I, was, I forgot about that. There is, um, uh, so that's an interesting um, uh, twist on the on the tradition. It why? Why is that? What's the reason for the divine feminine? Yeah. Um, so uh, so you know there you can approach this from psychological point of view or from a mystical point of view. I think the mystical point of view is it, there's a connection between uh, uh, God's healing uh, role. And God's feminine attribute, um, so it appeals to God's feminine attribute. Uh, from the psychological point of view, I think you know when I when I'm sick, I want my mommy, right? Um, and uh, I mean, you know, so uh, so I think that there's there's uh, some of that too. Um, yeah. What about uh, naming after the deceased person? Is that a tradition or? Yeah. So it's interesting. There's a. Um, uh, Cultural differences here. So it's the Ashkenazi custom uh, to name after deceased relatives, um, and it's the Sephardi custom to name after living relatives. Um, so, uh, uh, so my friend uh, Ari, who's Sephardic, uh, his Hebrew name is Arya ben Arya, right? Um, and uh, um, uh, but uh, but it's it, it, since you know most of the uh, uh, since the, uh, especially in the conservative movement, um, were primarily Ashkenazi, is m- much more commonly encountered people who were named after deceased relatives, and that's the prevalent custom. So uh, uh, Shemaya is uh, named after my grandmother, uh, and uh, and uh, Adira's uncle, and Lila is named after, uh, uh, sorry, my, he's named after my great grandmother. And Lila is named after my grandmother and um, and Adira's aunt. Yeah. How do you spell Shemaya? In English or Hebrew? In English. S H E M A Y A. My great grandmother. In my opinion, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these are traditions, and, and frankly, based on superstitions. Um, 
So, uh, you know, there's, it, it, none of these traditions are really written in stone anywhere. It's certainly not biblical. Uh, but, uh, um, yeah, I don't, I don't see why, why that's problematic. Um, yeah. Right, I haven't gotten there yet, yeah, yeah. Um, but, so, the, the one other thing I wanted to say about, um, about the Hebrew names um, is, you know, I don't, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not such a, uh, um, uh, a, a um, how to phrase it, like a, um, an expert student of, uh, like, the, the, um, black power movement of the 60s. But, like, I, I know there was, like, a tradition um, uh, in, in, you know, some segments in a, of, of, uh, of the African-American community, and I think it's still in some ways true today, um, that, uh, um, that you uh, don't give, um, you don't give European names to your kids, right? Because that's your, that's, you know, it's like Malcolm X, right? Like, um, like, don't want to be called by your slave name. Right. And, uh, and, and I think, and I feel that way in a lot of ways about, um, about like the relationship between my like secular name and my Hebrew name. Right. That, you know, um, I'm in America, um, stretching back, you know, 2000 years by virtue of, uh, of being forcibly taken into exile in Babylonia. Right. And, uh, and, and to be called by a diaspora name is like I'm being, you know, called by, by the name my captors want me to have, right? And uh, and so my my truest self um, is, I think, embodied in uh, in in my in my Hebrew name. So um, you know, so that's that. Anyway, I don't know. I, I, I think that's sort of like a uh, half baked idea that I've been playing with. But um, um, okay, Hebrew uh, event. So um, when uh, when a child is uh, thirty days old, um, when it's the first. Born male child. No, the firstborn male child of an anybody. Um, of an anybody, yeah. Uh, firstborn male child um, uh, has to be redeemed. Why does it? What does that mean? It has to be redeemed according to the Bible. Uh, the firstborn male child of, uh, of of all Israelites belongs to God. Uh, in exchange for uh, having. Uh, killed all the firstborn Egyptians um, uh, during the 10th plague in Egypt. So the way around having to, uh, you know, dedicate your child to the, to the priesthood uh, is to, uh, to pay off a priest, uh, basically. <laughs> you redeem them with money. So you say, um, uh, it's, it's, it's an exchange, right? Instead of giving you my child, I'm going to give you the monetary equivalent of my child, and you can use that for the upkeep of the temple. That's where, that's the, what the tradition um, originally came from. So we still practice it today, even in the absence of a, of a temple. Um, and uh, um, it's usually practiced by giving um, uh, like five silver dollars, because it's supposed to be five shekels, um, five silver dollars to a, uh, to a, to a Kohen. Um, and, uh, and that's what Pidyon Abed means. Pidyon Abed means redemption of the sun. Um, and redemption is like, like a bottle cap, right? You're, you're, you're trading it in for money, right? So, uh, so that's what, that's what it is. Um, questions about that? It doesn't have to be a Levite. The person who you uh, give the money to has to be a Kohen. Uh, but the uh, but the 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 child who's redeemed is the firstborn son of anybody. Right. Um, 
there's a lot of like technicalities with I mean, and again, you have you know why firstborn son and not firstborn daughter. I, I get it. Um, uh, but uh, um, and there's some technicalities of it too. Um, for example, um, if uh, uh, your first, it's it's right. It's it's a few, it's a few weeks after the birth. Um, the uh, um, uh, firstborn son means it's actually your firstborn, right? Not not like Shemaiah doesn't count as my firstborn son, even though he's my uh, first son that I have, um, because he's not the firstborn of my uh, of of our family. Um, but also things like um, children that are born of cesarean sections um, aren't counted uh, for pedion event; they have to be born through natural birth. Yeah, um, uh, uh, because the uh, the the language that the Torah uses it has to be uh, it's like the first issue of uh, the loins of the mother, and so the rabbis interpreted that to mean like it actually has to come through the loins of the mother, um, and that's how they uh, interpreted that because they were experts in female anatomy. So, um, okay. Well, the, so the firstborn child has to be male child. If, right. if the firstborn child, if the firstborn child is a male child, then uh, you do pidyon at, uh, uh, at thirty the, days. The thirty days there, plus the thirty days shloshim. What's the connection? Yeah. Um, so it's a it, it it's a it's a month, right? Um, it's a lunar cycle. Um, so there's uh, a, a sense that it's a, um, a significant period of time. Um, uh, um, uh, the, you know, it, it's 30 days, um, like for detachment, right? So, um, uh, the thinking was, you know, it, it will take 30 days to sort of, uh, detach yourself from the grief of, uh, of, of having lost a loved one. Um, you know, uh, uh 60 days being too long and, and, uh, Ten days being too short, right? Um, uh, and uh, and thirty days is also detachment from the from the child, right? So um, uh, you know, so you you could, if you wanted to, you know, uh, wean the child that early. I mean, because the practice is like actually. I mean, now we redeem, but the way the Torah describes it is, I have to like actually like hand my baby over to the priest, right, and say bye bye. Um, I have to actually give up the child. Um, so, so it's, you know, sort of, a um, um, that's, so there is a relationship between 30 days. Um, but I think it's because, um, it enables detachment. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, there's a, there's there's one other thing that's, uh, that's not on your, uh, list of terms, but I think it's, um, uh, uh, Worth mentioning is uh, what's called a um, uh, an upsharon. Have you guys ever heard of this? Yeah. So what's an upsharon? Right. The first the first haircut. First haircut. So um, this is also one that is a U P S H E R I N. Yeah, it's Yiddish. Uh, I don't know exactly how to answer that question. Um, uh, I mean, I think I, I think that it's a Jewish custom um, that is much more commonly practiced in the Orthodox community than in other communities. Uh, um, 
What? Yeah. So, um, uh, but I've been to uh, I've been to them in in non-Orthodox communities too. So the. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if you, uh, um, uh, if you, so the, so the, the practice is actually, um, uh, um, probably also, uh, it, I mean, similarly, uh, to, uh, Breet Me Law in some ways is, uh, probably not, um, uh, uh, detached from some degree of superstition, um, and also a little bit of sexism. Uh, so, uh, um, so the the thinking again, going back to some demons, um, is that uh, um, uh, before a child has the opportunity, uh, before a male child has the opportunity to start formal Jewish study, they don't have the right kind of spiritual protection, um, and uh, and demons are very interested in snatching up baby boys because baby boys are going to be the ones who study Torah and bring redemption to the world. Uh, but before they start studying Torah, they're not spiritually protected. So what parents created an ingenious device. They, let's not cut the hair of the child for the first three years until they start formally studying Torah. And then the demons won't be able to tell if it's a boy or a girl. Uh, and so at three years, we cut the child's hair, uh, revealing that they are actually a boy. But instantly, we start them on studying Torah. So that's the usually the upsharing is the sort of introduction to formal Jewish study for the for the child, it's usually celebrated by the child like eating, you know, cookies in the shape of Hebrew letters or like licking honey off of a page of text or something like that to like introduce them to the sweetness of uh, of, of Jewish study. Um, uh, and uh, and you know, on a wonderful modern twist to this, I've seen uh, families do this whether uh, uh, whether their child is a boy or a girl. So uh, Adira and I have not cut Lila's hair. She's now two and a half years old. This summer we'll have an upsharing for her. Um, and you'll start her with her formal introduction to Jewish study. Even though, what? We're all invited. We're all, you're all, you all will be invited. Even though it's sort of like, you know, you've seen the practice of, um, of, uh, of you know, uh, brides and grooms uh, dancing at a wedding, right? Uh, like being lifted up on a chair and like holding a handkerchief, right? Um, so where does that practice come from? Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler on the Roof. No, it's, so it's older than Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, the practice comes from, uh, um, uh, uh, so traditionally, uh, brides and grooms would not be able to touch each other in public, much less dance with each other in public. Uh, and they would be able to see each other because they would be on uh, divided sides of a reception uh, where you can't see either couple. Um, and, uh, and so um, it was an opportunity for the bride and groom they were hoisted on chairs, so they they you know they could be uh, uh, lifted over the partition, um, and they couldn't touch each other to dance with each other. But through a handkerchief, it sort of like facilitated them to be able to dance together, right? So today, such a thing is practiced even in communities uh, and at weddings where the bride and groom are going to be dancing with each other, sometimes inappropriately, uh, anyway, right? And they're still being lifted up on chairs and holding the handkerchief, and also, you know. Like mom, the mom and dad are being hoisted up, and they're holding onto the handkerchief together too, right? So you know, there's lots of Jewish practices that are sort of uh, reappropriated from their original context in ways that make absolutely no sense when you think back to their original context, but nevertheless are fun customs and, and beautiful customs. Yeah. It's working right, I know, right? So right, bar mitzvahs, right? right. The next step will be the bris. Right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, now it's just 
Jewish dancing involves lifting up on chairs. Like, no matter the context. What's even funnier is they've lived together for four years. Right, 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 right. Okay. Um, While this is passing around, um, you know, I, I, I... um, you know, obviously between uh, Upshur and, and uh, Bar and Bat Mitzvah, there's a, there's a lot that we could talk about. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's usually the, um, the, that's usually the time for uh, formal Jewish education in most uh, kids' lives, even though Jewish education is a lifelong um, endeavor. Um, but I think that the, uh, um, the, the ideal um, uh, of, uh, of uh, childhood education is to um, is uh, uh, to create um, as much of, as possible immersive Jewish environments, right? And I think that there are um, a few different ways of uh, of, of doing that. Um, but I think that uh, the um, uh, what what gets sort of lost in the shuffle. Um, in our, you know, sort of consumerist culture that outsources everything, we sort of outsource our kids' Jewish education. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously uh, in um, older uh, and ancient Jewish communities, there was, there was formal Jewish education in school, uh, but it was not uh, divorced from the Jewish life that the uh, child would have at home. Right, so it was uh, so school reinforced and deepened Jewish learning, um, but it was uh, um, uh, Jew- it was they were learning about Jewish life that was being modeled at, at home as well, um, and I think that that's been sort of lost in our context, um, uh, which is that. So I think that uh, um, the, the the optimal way to maximize Jewish education um, is for um, uh, uh, parents to once again uh, model Jewish learning. And so not only to send their kids to school, but also uh, show them that Jewish learning is an important part of Jews' lives, regardless of their age, which you're all obviously doing, uh, but for, uh, for parents to be able to do that uh, in their home um, as well. Um, to uh, identify Jewish teachable moments, right? So uh, to, to use um, experiences in um, in. in children's lives to reinforce Jewish values. And this, there, you know, there are different ways of doing this, but I'll never forget. I mean, I went to a Jewish day school growing up, uh, but I got, uh, and, and because I went to a Jewish day school, I didn't really have to go, I didn't have to go to like afternoon Hebrew school, uh, except for the year before my bar mitzvah, I had to go to, uh, we had, in my synagogue, we had Saturday morning Hebrew school and, um, as part of the overall Hebrew school program. So my parents made me either go to services which I didn't want to do, uh, or uh, Saturday morning school, which was like slightly better because there were other kids there. Um, so I went to Saturday school, but I really didn't like it, and I was like a pain in the tuchus kid. Um, and uh, and so I uh, got into a fight. We had like um, uh, teenage madrichim, like teenage, like like you know, like fifteen year old, sixteen year old, like counselors uh, that were like helping to facilitate the classes. And uh, I, I like I like got up. Um, and, you know, walked out of one of my classes because, like, I didn't really care about it. I wanted to go get a drink of water. And, you know, one of the madrichim, like, stopped me. Um, and, uh, and you know, one thing led to another, and he punched me in the face. Um, and, and, you know, and, uh, and, and I had just written a paper for, you know, my sixth grade uh, 
Bible class in my Jewish day school on the verse from Leviticus, like you shall, uh, um, you shall not bear a grudge or hate your kinsmen uh, in your heart. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And so I had a very stern uh, 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 talking to from my dad, like holding up that paper to me, like making me read it out loud to him, right? About, you know, uh, even though I was the one who got punched, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but uh, you know, sort of did, uh, played my role in it too. Um, uh, but I don't necessarily mean, you know, uh, something like as uh, uh, intense as that, but there are always uh, moments in our kids' lives where there are uh, opportunities to bring up Jewish values and relate it to what's going on um, uh, in, in um, constructive ways. Um, and then there are uh, uh, moments in, uh, um, in which one can incorporate Judaism that are unrelated to teachable moments, right? So... Um, bringing Jewish rituals and customs in the house and things like that. Um, you know, uh, uh, the creation, I think and this is really crucial in any context, the creation of positive Jewish memories. You know, I think that, uh, um, you know, in some way, uh, you know, if all our religious school did was um, uh, have kids have positive Jewish memories um, and therefore warm associations with Judaism, um, it will have done its job. Um, and I think that's true of the home as well. Um, so the one, the mem Jewish memory I just described is not a particularly positive Jewish memory, but, uh, um, uh, but there are all sorts of, you know, really warm, wonderful Jewish memories I have growing up that, that helped, uh, um, maintain and inspire a Jewish connection, um, as, as an adult. Um, and, and then the other is, um, um, but this is a hard one in contemporary society, um, but, uh, to make room for the holy. Um, so parents are, are often very, I think, intimidated and, uh, from, from uh, responding to their kids' questions about God and uh, intentionally bringing God into their home. Um, even if the parents believe in God, uh, sometimes there's a discomfort with it. Because we live in a society um, in which you know, God is just like not part of the general conversation, especially among Jews. Um, but it's so important because kids have such a natural spirituality, um, and uh, um, you know we risk sort of like uh, having that shrivel up um, if, uh, if we don't nurture it. Um, so I think it's it's uh, it's something that that often gets lost. Um, yeah, Gary. Uh, regarding the bar buttons for uh, of the young ladies in our society today, they still do the bar at the thirteen, but in tradition. Wasn't the young woman supposedly reaching womanhood at a younger age of 13? 12. <clears throat> right, so there, uh, so there are different traditions about this. Um, uh, so the, let's, let's, let, let, let me introduce Bar uh, Mitzvah and, uh, and then move there. So, uh, um, so now we're moving on. The child is uh, uh, 12 or 13, right? Um, they're getting to be... Uh, 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 more adult, uh, at least physically, in some senses, uh, developmentally, than they are children. Um, and they become uh, in what uh, the Jewish tradition calls bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. So, um, so that's an important distinction. I note how I said that. They become bar or bat mitzvah. They don't have a bar or bat mitzvah. Um, what's the difference? Just live long enough and you're there. Right, exactly. There's no, there's no need for a ritual associated with it, right? There's, 
You tell your kids. That's fine. Um, uh, save me some time. Uh, uh, there's no need for a ritual associated with it, right? There's uh, no need for a party. There's no need, right? Once you turn a certain age, you become a bar or bat mitzvah. Uh, so what does that mean, becoming a bar or bat mitzvah? You're a mensch. Oh, Hopefully you are. You become an adult in the Jewish religion, and you have to assume the responsibilities that go with becoming an adult. Right. So usually people like translate bar or bat mitzvah very awkwardly as son or daughter of commandment, which is, I guess, literally what those words translate as, but that's not what the phrase means. What the phrase means is um, uh, um, of commandment age, right? I would think you're reach an age where you're responsible for your own actions not your parents. Exactly. Exactly, right? So bar bat mitzvah means you are of commandment age. You are of the age of responsibility, right? You've, you've reached majority age, right? Which means that uh, that you uh, um, uh, uh, um, are responsible for living a Jewish life independent of whether or not your parents did or want you to, right? Um, so, uh, so that's what the phrase means, right? Bar bat mitzvah. There's a, um, uh, in, uh, in, in rabbinic law, um, uh, that ha a boy becomes bar mitzvah at age uh, 13. Um, uh, for a girl, according to rabbinic law, although there's, it's fuzzy, um, uh, 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 become, uh, a girl becomes of the age of, uh, of, of obligation um, at the age of 12. Um, right, right. Uh, in, 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 in truth. So, um, uh, um, so I want to, I want to, can we look at the, can someone read for, for us, uh, this, uh, um, piece by Ed Feinstein? Because I think that this really contextualizes it in a, in a great way. Someone read. Um, Thanks, Bar Mitzvah boy stands on the synagogue bima, stretches to his full five foot height, proclaims in his crackling voice, today I am a man. Not exactly. The Jewish tradition recognized some changes that came come at the age of 13. Certain business contracts can be completed by 13-year-olds. At 13, teaches Avot de Rabbi Natan. Am I pronouncing that right? Avot de Rabbi Natan, yeah. The, uh, the boy can control his Yitzchir Hara, his natural impulses for the first time. After 12... Oh, tell that to a 13-year-old boy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> After 12, according to Talmud Kedubal, the style of education changes, and as one text puts it, Rabbi Isaac stated, it was ordained at Usha that a man must bear with his son until he is 12 years of age. From that age onwards, he may threaten his life. <laughs> Puts a new spin on Bar Mitzvah, doesn't it? Right, <laughs> right. Uh, right, in other words, right, uh, um, uh, right, in other words, you know, um, you can, like, you, you put up with your son's nonsense until, uh, in, in, until they're 12 years old, and then when, once they turn 13, um, you can, you know, they can be held accountable. Yeah, they can be held accountable. <laughs> exactly. They can be held accountable. Right? Um, okay, go ahead. Despite these changes, it's clear from a close reading of the rabbinic texts that a teen still lived with his parents and under, under their authority. Jewish tradition did not consider the child at 13 to be fully adult. Instead, he is beginning the process that would lead to adulthood. For both the biblical and rabbinic traditions, the age of 20 was the legal age of adulthood. In the Bible, 20 was the age at which one was counted in the census and eligible for military service. In the Talmud, 20 is the age at which one is permitted to sell property inherited from a deceased father. 20 is also the age when one may stand before the community as Shalach Titzbur, Shaliach Titzbur, Shaliach Titzbur, sorry, to lead prayer 
or to recite the priestly benediction, and most significantly, 20 is the age when one seeks a marriage partner. Stop. Uh, unless somebody wants to take over. Thank you, Brief. Yeah. Yet just as the rabbinic tradition recognized childhood as a significant phase of life, it recognized adolescence as well. The rabbinic concept of adolescence is revealed in the Midrash. Thirteen is recognized as the beginning of a new phrase of moral and spiritual life. According to Pirkei the Rabbi Eliezer, thirteen was the age when Abraham smashed his father's idols. It was at that age when Jacob and Esau separated. Jacob to a life of Torah, and Esau to the practice of idolatry. Thirteen is the age Levi was when he and his brother Simeon attacked the people of Shechem to avenge their sister. At thirteen was the age when Bezal gained the artistic skill to build Mishkan, the tabernacle. Each of these images is remarkably <laughs> suggestive. Together, they describe a vivid picture of adolescence. Like Abraham's experience, adolescence is a time of rebellion. To find his own truth, the young person must smash the idols of conventional wisdom and accepted custom. The youngster sees himself or, or herself as a pioneer, the first to set foot on a new moral territory. He or she seeks idols, a sense of mission, a clear voice of conscience to follow. Teens have little tolerance for the false, the compromised, and superficial. Like Jacob's life, adolescence is a time of spiritual search and a quest for identity. Somewhere out there, there is a truth waiting for him or her. God is waiting at the end of the wilderness. But the quest demands we leave home and endure a journey fraught with peril and uncertainty. Like Levi, adolescence is a time for moral absolutes. There is good, there is evil, and there is no ground between. Evil must be encountered and destroyed. Compromise, accommodation, gradualism are not acceptable. Judgmental, intolerant, demanding teens can also be deeply loyal, passionately dedicated, and aggressive in their pursuit of a better world. Like Basil, the adolescence is a time when every creation impulse flowers. Practically, realism will come later in life. For now, no dream is beyond realization. No plan is out of reach. In adolescence, each of us dreams of building a dwelling place for God in the world in our own way. The connection between adolescence and mitzvah is significant. In contrast to the materialistic narcissism of contemporary teen culture, bar or bat mitzvah is a counterculture. It offers a radically different concept of adulthood, a different sense of life, a life of mitzvah. Mitzvah is an act of self-transcendence. Mitzvah demands that we reach and become more than we are, more moral, more holy, more godly. In doing a mitzvah, we discover our power to touch the world and heal its brokenness. We discover that we matter. The paradox of mitzvah is, is that in performing a selfless act, we discover a bigger and better self. Bar or bat mitzvah offers a life of simcha shel mitzvah, the joy of mitzvah. Thank you. So the, the rituals that are associated with Bar Bat Mitzvah, which are, you know, often uh, participating in the leading of services, chanting from sacred text, Torah, Haftorah, Torah, um, uh, 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 reciting blessings in the presence of community, right? These are, these are statements that the, that the child is making, um, saying that, that I'm prepared to, uh, to, to enter into or uh, to journey into Jewish adulthood 
um, which means a life of responsibility um, in, in all of these ways, right? So it's, so we often sort of like miss the forest for the trees, I think, with Bar Mitzvah, because we make the whole uh, uh, thing about, okay, today I'm a man, and, and, and what that means, or a woman, and what that means is um, I, you know, I prepare for a year to read uh, a, a long text of Hebrew that I don't really understand, right? And the, and, and, and the, the purpose is supposed to be much more empowering than that and much more declarative than that. Right? And what, what the, what the, um, what, what standing in front of a community leading part of services declares is, I am capable in the same way you are of making those decisions in my life, uh, to, uh, to, to lead the world toward redemption, um, to facilitate the coming together of the community, to enable the connection between, uh, individual and God and community and, and God. Um, and, uh, and, and I can participate in that in the same way, um, that you can. So if we go back to the beginning question of, you know, what's the job that the tradition is trying to get done? What are we leading our children toward, um, in Jewish education? I think Rabbi Feinstein, um, phrases it, uh, perfectly here, right? What we're leading them toward is a sense that when they enter into um, adulthood, their sense of self um, is a life of mitzvah, a life of self-transcendence, a life of obligation, a, lot, a life of ethical imperative um, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, transcendent connection um, and communal responsibility, right? That's the job Judaism is trying to get done, a more perfect body, a more perfect spirit. I ask a question, and I know since one of our esteemed educators is sitting in our presence, um, are our kids being taught what I just read today? Because what I'm hearing sometimes is they're trying to let them understand what Judaism is all about, but not necessarily the responsibilities that go along with it. And I and I caught and I, I'm curious. I don't sit in the class. I don't know what the teachers teach. But uh, in my own grandchildren's case, I know that there's some resistance that they're expressing because they feel like they're not getting anything but something great from the book. And I'm curious whether our teachers are given the opportunity, or it's expressed to the teachers to direct some of this teaching towards what we just read. Right. So the, so the short answer, because uh, I'm, I'm cognizant that we're, we're past time and I can talk to you more about this uh, sure. uh, privately, the, the short answer is um, uh, yes, we do, but we could do more. Okay. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, one of the things that uh, Hazan, Marion, and I um, are working aggressively toward is um, a fuller realization of, uh, of, of this vision of what Jewish education uh, can accomplish in the lives of our kids.